Anything you want to talk about? Can you give us any scoop? No. We, we, I don't think we've ever had any scoops. Oh, what about scoop. the new kill capture drop? Are you... Yeah, we've got a watch coming. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it. It's just a... So is it like blue steel? You got to tame it, learn <laughs> it out of the cake. Exactly. I got to save this material. You got to write you, that down. Did you get, did you get that? <laughs> Welcome to season two of the Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two ex SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show. Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I'm here standing next to Tim. G'day, Ben. Hey, Tim. We've got a pretty special guest this week. Our show is about living a life less ordinary and going a little further. And this guy has certainly lived a life less ordinary. In his 38-odd years, he has been a father, a husband, an SAS troop commander, a combat soldier, a fashion designer, a model, a reality TV star, an entrepreneur, and a student at one of the world's most prestigious MBA institutions. Is that an ordered list? <laughs> no, in fact, in a particular <laughs> order. <laughs> no. no, that was stream of consciousness. But he has done was, all that. It was stream of something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, in no particular order. He's been all those things. And also a really good bloke. Mark Wells joins us today to talk about a few of those things and also about chasing your dream, about swinging for the bleachers, which he's done a number of times quite successfully, and uh, what success and, and happiness might look like with all of those things going on in your life. Let's get on with the show. <laughs> right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I am standing here with Tim. G'day, Ben. And this week's guest, Mark Wallace. G'day, mate. Good afternoon. Now, this room is two-thirds full of <laughs> CrossFit regional athletes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's, one, there's one outlier, but yeah. Hey, I'm a Pan Pacific well, Masters silver let, medalist. Let's, let's just do the roll call. You, you're a CrossFit regional athlete, I, Mark? I actually am, yeah. Yeah. Same here. Were they in I, the day where you could just nominate <laughs> yourself to go to regionals? <laughs> actually, it wasn't far yeah, We were going to talk about before the Open, yeah. Well, actually... You also won an event at that CrossFit regional. Did too, yeah. That was a that was a five minute. I don't do anything longer than five minutes if I can avoid it. But that's how long the event went for. So I think it was for reps, right? It was just like, bomb. yeah, and it was right in your wheelhouse, wasn't it? Yeah, Dead, deadlifts and <laughs> biceps. For yeah, reps. biceps and uh, and and tries. And I had old Pete there calling the shots when I was trying to do it too. So yeah, it was brutal. So there was. <laughs> Short repping you as well, and you still won. Short repping me, still won. I don't talk about the last event we did where I basically greyed out and couldn't handle it. <laughs> but I just talk about the good one that I did. Yeah, that was pretty so good. So, podium finish for either of you? No. Okay, no. So, no. you nominate yourself to go to this pseudo regionals event and you don't podium, but you're still bragging about it. Did didn't get, nominate. I thought we you did got... sectionals. So, there was sectionals. a. So elimination. The six of you that did sectionals, and of oh. that, what? Six of you went to regionals. No, no. 
See, Tim's getting all bitter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was, just, I was just doing the math. I'm like, shit, maybe he's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, you've, you've not been to regional, so you don't know what you're talking about. But <laughs> in fairness to you, Tim, it was before CrossFit was a big thing. Yeah. And in fact, to the point where I remember that event you won, Whaler, I think it was 120 kilo deadlift and 60 kilo yes, squat clean. That's right. Yeah. And then I remember seeing a regionals like a couple of years later where it was 120 kilo squat cleans. So <laughs> exactly. the, the standard gone got to the point. It had gone, yeah, the deadlift weights I, were I now getting cleaned. it's safe cleaned. to assume that's now the teen weight, yeah, yeah. 14 to 15. The yeah. intro, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Suffice to say we're early, we're pioneers. Mm, and probably. we weren't affiliated. Was, we didn't have a gym we that's were attached right. to, which was kind of See, cool. That's cool. I, I also yeah, didn't have shoes. Cool. I, I, did, <laughs> I did all of that in Vibrams. You did in Vibrams. I had cuts on my feet from a surf trip. Mm-hmm. And the instructor, when I got there, they're like, oh, you're obviously here to uh, spectate. And they gave me a spectator form. <laughs> I actually home competing. I put on a few kilos when I was in Argentina. <laughs> I'm the <Just> talent. <laughs> I do recall our, our um, post on the first day. It was a two-day event. And our post, um, uh, post-recovery post meal was chips and beer. <laughs> <laughs> chips and beer. Everyone else was rolling their legs out and uh, you know doing the right thing. But we were, we were a bit loose. Yeah, it was amateur. <laughs> Which mm. resulted in a non-podium finish. <laughs> Speaking of loose, I'm surprised you're here because we killed you off a few episodes ago in an interview um, oh, yeah. that we did on the apocalypse with yep. the comedian Mick Nevin. In fact, full disclosure, Ben killed you off. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I'd be keen for you to give you a writer reply, Mark, because we said um, Mick was very interested that there was an SAS guy who'd been on Survivor. He's into the apocalypse and the kind of people that'd be handy around. He said, this whaler's got to be a... a He's a candidate. Yeah, a candidate. You need him around. And I said, nah, he's already dead. <laughs> because he was wearing his jacket, wouldn't take the jacket off, overheated, and passed out and got eaten. And with climate change, I mean, it's seriously hot in the year 2100. It's, so It's hot. And I got voted out by my tribe for, for pairing up with a lady. It was basically the only Achilles heel thing I had, and I fell for the oldest trick in the book. Yeah, um, Classic. But I've learned from it. So next time, I'll be, I'll be much more... Um, well-dressed, mm. and uh, stay away from the ladies if I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I bet Sam is hoping that, that uh, you'll, <laughs> exactly. you'll do that. Mate, let's rewind the clock. Let's let's talk about sort of your, your childhood, sort of how you yeah. got to where you are today. Perth boy? Yeah, I grew up in um, – I was born in Newman, so way up north. Family worked in the mines, and then we all <clears> – <throat> Dad joined Customs, and we came down to Perth and went to primary school here and south of River and Leeming, and then – when I was in high school, that's when I saw all the literature around the SAS, and I was like, shit, that's what I want to do, join them. Was this the sort of Bravo 2 zero? Was that about that it period? It was, yeah, because yeah. I, I looked, I was in grade nine, it was like 1993, Bravo 2 zero came out at one point, and I remember reading that going, oh, God, this sounds awesome. And now you read it, and you're like, oh, that sounds like a cluster. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the worst thing ever. But um, when you don't know any better, you read it and go, oh, look at this. Um, so, yeah, I was excited, and then applied for ADFA, and then... Um, Got the scores in year 12 and, and off we went. Uh, How, yeah. How'd you find so ADFA? All three of us went through the Australian Defence Force Academy. Yeah. You enjoy it? I, did, oh, I, I was impatient to get out and get in the wider army. It felt like a boarding school yeah. to me. I think I peaked at ADFA. <laughs> that <was a> <laughs> that, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird setup because you had 19 year olds looking after young kids. So, and there was no adult supervision. Like yeah. the instructors like, here like were Lord just. Lord of the Flies. Lord of the oh. Flies. It was just unbelievable. I'm sure it was even worse when you guys were there, but 
I think with the last hard class that went through, <laughs> 97, 98. <laughs> well, I, I think you can be judged by your academic transcript. How's oh, yeah. yours look like? Uh, mine was, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that flash. Uh, it didn't get much better when I went to business school, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I got out as an art student. If you don't get out of there as an art student, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, I got out as an art student. I was black jibbers. Oh, I was. <laughs> oh black jibber. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. What's black jibbers? You used to get a the little shield. A, a little thing on your name tag <laughs> if you're doing well <laughs> academically. Yeah. It was a pecking order I was also thing. getting wedgies in the, in the toilet, so I was a bit of a nerd. Um, no, like I said, I peaked the, the pinnacle of my military career was that <laughs> Okay, well, let's call it graduated middle of the class for you, Mark. Yeah, middle of the class. And across Not the hill to the Royal Military College? Across, across to the college. Had to How'd take my jibber off. Um, <laughs> that was, oh, no. So at the college, I thought, oh, this is going to be it. I'm going to do really well here. I think the first exercise we did out field, I did a platoon attack and attacked my own support by five. <laughs> <laughs> just swept through it and killed my own guys. Tactics instructors love that they love sort it. of move. They too. love it. And they killed off all my mates. And then they sat there at the end. They're like, you need to think about a career change. Ooh. Yeah, and I was like, oh, To artillery? <laughs> Did uh, they actually do the theatre? Like, oh, like the make theater. you stand over your dead friends? Like, and stand say, over your friends. Killed you. you, you've killed all these guys. Um, you killed a lot of good men that day yeah. with your <laughs> mess so up fire good. mission. <laughs> you, you've Mine already. You know, I had some mild shell shock and just like went back to my <laughs> section. Everyone was laughing about it. I thought it was awesome. So it was just. Um, so you got PTSD from yeah. second class <laughs> RMC. I got early stage trauma from attacking my own mates. But. Um, Oh, you know, and then then got through it all and, and survived and got to tour AR, so I was pretty stoked with that. Yeah. yeah. Good unit, and we all served there too. We did. We oh, did. yeah, yeah, right. Very similar career trajectories. And, of course, from there... And then from there, so like I went to a reserve unit in Perth at mm-hmm. Karakata and trained for selection there, and then selection in 2004, mm. and just clung on to the bloody yeah. bitter end and staggered over... <laughs> Stack it over the line. We, um, when we spoke with Monica just recently, we, we spoke a lot about selection and, and different perspectives and that sort of stuff. You are clearly not a 56-year-old female, a 56-kilogram female. Um, <laughs> exactly. That, that uh, Monica is. Yeah. Oh, mate, I was, uh, everyone kept saying to me, they're like, you, you won't be able to do the endurance stuff, you're too heavy. Everyone kept saying it. And I knew they were kind of right, but I just I chipped away at it in the training because I'm like, if I can just get above threshold in that, then I'll survive the rest, but mm. it was yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too good on that yeah. th- on that phase. Yeah, tough course, yeah. Um, but of course you got in. Got in. Yeah. Anecdotes from selection. Um, I think on the what's the endurance phase again? Happy wanderer. Happy wanderer. I was on happy wanderer. I was like I was chin strap. I had a, a really badly damaged knee, and my other heel had a giant divot out of it from a blister and it was about day three and i was i'd only covered about 13 k's the whole day and i knew i was cactus if i couldn't mm. and i was like i'll just if i find a snake i'll step on that stuff until it bites me <laughs> until it bites me and then i'll be able to get evacuated and, and i won't have the the shame the, uh, the shame of having to uh, you know pull myself off but um you know sat under a tree and had a drink of water and got my wits back and eventually kind of fixed myself up and Pound just just got over it yeah just got there yeah shit <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's got very fond memories Although you said you enjoyed it Yeah, I really enjoyed selection I mean, there are times where you're absolutely miserable yeah. But for the most part, I, I enjoyed it Yeah I was like was the last of the easy courses <laughs> that. <laughs> That's the combined one Yeah, I was lucky because I had uh, with me mm. And we were both from 2RIR and, and we were together in the last phase So 
we kind of were able to bounce off each other and, and both finish, so that, that actually helped. That does help, although it can be, We I think we reflected on this, can be that double-edged sword, because if one goes, if you if you, yeah. you're relying on that that other person, it yeah. can be a real kick in the in the guts. Yeah, and that was a good point you're making about training realistically. Like, yeah. no you know, no earphones, wearing the gear you're going to have, not having your mate there holding your hand the whole time, yeah. because that's what, it, that's what it is. That was the hardest bit, mm. just that lack of feedback. It was, uh, yeah, well, yeah. If you're a millennial, <laughs> it's even harder. <laughs> no Instagram lights. Okay, and then into the unit. Where did you serve yeah. uh, within the regiment? Uh, so the early trips, so we were finished Rio in 2005, and the early trips were kind of the security detachments into Iraq and Afghanistan. There were a few mm. of those going. Yeah. So I got on a couple of them. And then Timor, I think it was the, just before Renato, there was a crisis there in 06. Yep before our trip and went on that one yep. and then looked after the president while we were there, mm-hmm. Guzmao, and then came back and then we did our trip, mm-hmm. um, which was the the Renato hunt in 2006. Yeah. And then it was just Afghanistan from there, we were flat out, yeah. really. So yeah. Reflections on the unit? Um, so oh, it was even better than I thought it was going to be. Like you kind of know it's going to be good, but it was even better than I thought it was going to be. And I knew it from when we got our first lesson on the M4, um, for anyone who hasn't done a weapons lesson, normally you get all the details, weapon, muzzle velocity, the exact weight, all this, mm. all this garbage that doesn't matter. Um, just holds the gun and goes, yep, yeah, weighs about this much. It's got a fair few bullets in it. They go pretty fast, um, pointing this end towards the enemy. Any, any questions? This is how you load it, unload it. <laughs> all right, you're qualified. And then we get into the train. Adult learning environment. Yeah, and then yeah. that was just, like, that's just one of the many things. But the, the amount of corporate knowledge any unit that's been around that long mm. and seen so much uh, combat is really good. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And what were your, fre- your reflections? I mean, I think we've spoken before about ultimately what you're doing in the military is preparing for combat. You're yeah. sort of training towards it. And mm. although it sounds paradoxical, it's kind of the goal. You want to get combat experience. Yeah. Um, what were your reflections on on sort of finally hitting that point and, and seeing combat in Afghanistan? Yeah, I remember we... I remember talking to you about it when the rotation formed. It wasn't mm. even going to happen because it was like the end of the year. Yeah. And they weren't going to do it. And they were like, all right, we'll form a composite troop and we'll head off. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because you, you're waiting for that chance yeah. to be a true commander in, in that type of theatre. So we formed that composite troop and took off. And I think it was October or September 2007. And um, I was talking to <laughs> when we were in uh, East Timor. And he's like, oh, no, there'll be plenty of, there'll be plenty of action left. Mm. over there because I thought it was going to be over by Christmas usual story <laughs> um, and then yeah we went over there and then f- one of the first missions we did was a clearance of the Chura Valley mm. which they'd done I think the yeah. Dutch and Aussie troops had done that a year before December 2006 yeah. and they'd had some serious serious combat in there mm. and they were still controlling the valley so we went back in um, did another clearance with a Gurkha unit and that was the first time we got in real kind of in, in real shit. And yeah. And, and was this Matty Locke? This was when Matt Locke was yeah. killed in the start of that battle. Um, and then we spent, I think we were in there for about 12 hours trying to get out. And it was such a busy battle space. So one end you had a ton of Gurkhas and then you knew it was either friendly troops you had to go through or the enemy. So we kind of were trying to get out of there mm. the safest way we could. And yeah. Yeah. Pretty tough, tough day at the office. That was a tough day. That yeah. was a very tough day. Yeah. yeah. I remember a mutual friend of all of ours, Buzz, saying that he'd, he'd caught up with you, I think, at the end of that 
period or yeah. you, you just extracted and yep. yeah just reflecting that i mean it just got real yeah he yeah. was good about it like, when we went out i shook buzz's hands we were leaving we all went out came you know we were back in the gate about 18 hours later or whatever it was and i said to him i was i was like i felt terrible i'm like we just went through all that we've lost one guy um matthew this hasn't happened in god knows how long to the mm-hmm. unit it just felt like i'd done something wrong and um buzz just goes look it's uh he was really good about it. he goes if you'd stopped the bullet he would have he would have been uh you know saying the same thing and mm. sometimes that's what happens and yeah yeah that day it was it was not not ideal yeah, yeah. how do you get through that as a leader mark it's I, I was talking about this the other day because there's no and it would have probably been the case for you guys too there's no instruction or or mm. Uh, corporate knowledge about what happens to a team if you get a fatality. So I didn't really know how to handle it. I, I kind of, on reflection, wish I'd been a bit more transparent because I was, I was hurting from it. It's a, it's a shock to have something like that happen. And I think if if you are more open about it, you kind of give people permission to grieve a bit and then you can get on with it. It doesn't mean you're not able to do your job if you're mm. upset about someone dying. Like, yeah, that's it's a pretty um, natural human exactly. reaction. Yeah, but if you like, if you just put on the stone face, people are sitting there going, "Am I the only one here that's actually feeling pretty bloody bad about this?" Mm. Um, so that, I mean, if, if ever this happens to someone else, that'd be my advice: to be mm. open and transparent, and doesn't mean you can't do your job. Yeah, we're talking, and I can't remember who with, but about that normalisation, just being able to sit back and say, "Well, that was messed up," and yeah. exactly to your point, Wyler, that it's. I'm not the only one that's that's yeah. feeling that that yeah. was traumatic or confronting yeah. or that, you know, I'm I'm hurting because yeah. of it. I think yeah. that's so important. Yeah. Did you play the stone face? Uh, a little bit, although I would some of the trusted guys I had in the team, I would say to them, like, oh, this is terrible. I feel mm. terrible. Mm. Um, and you, oh, I just never knew. Like, you never know what to expect. I never knew what that was going to be like. And then to finally be confronted with it, you're like, holy shit, this is very difficult. I found mm. it hard. And what about going back again? You know, you've got to reload your magazines and put them in your vest oh, and yeah. head out the next day. Yeah. How do you do that? I was afraid. I was like, because all of a sudden I was like, if this is this is not the game I thought it was, this is going to be very different. Mm-hmm. People are actually going to get hurt. Um, this hasn't been the case for the unit. We, I think we'd done yeah. four years and no one had really been. Yeah, it was all there been some injuries. games to yeah, someone all... loses a night. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I found that, I was like, oh, God. And then <clears throat> what we did is we actually added a few things to the team to make it tip things in our favour a bit. We took a couple of labs out the second time we mm-hmm. went out. Well, this is serious. Let's get some, mm-hmm. some, some, vehicles. some, some yep. light-armoured vehicles. And I think we just got a bit smarter with combined arms. We just had more support and redundancy no matter where we were. Mm. Um, and that, that helps, yeah. Now, a lot of people see... Pictures, imagery of ramp ceremonies, but yeah. could you talk to us about a ramp ceremony, the yeah. emotion alongside it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird because you go out. First, maybe firstly what it is. So, yeah, ramp ceremony for people who haven't heard of it, it's where we have a ceremony of farewell someone who's been killed overseas. And generally their their bodies are taken in a, in a bit of a ceremony to the aircraft and they're flying home and everyone's there to kind of farewell on. And the ones I saw in Afghanistan was all the allies came out to do it. Didn't matter if it was a yeah. Dutchie or a French person or an Aussie. That every person came out, and all the Aussies would kind of line the the um, line a tunnel heading to the aircraft, and and they would carry their mate up this up this kind of 
tunneled a fair while. It's pretty, uh, you know, it's moving stuff. Yeah. And so for us, we're standing there saluting a guy off who who we'd been working with not a day or two earlier. Um, oh, it's all sorts of emotions when you yeah you deal on that. It's like we're going to have to work after this, so you kind of have to hold it together. But it's bloody, it's not nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even in the late like 2010, the later tours, I think we had. 10 ramp ceremonies. We sent 10 Aussies home in about two or three months because there was a crash and a, there was just a whole lot of... It was really... Um, that was rough. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. So from Afghanistan, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think the, the sequence because we've obviously had a lot to do with each other over the yeah. years. Um, when did you actually get out of the military? So I, I did my last tour with... And on rotation with, I think, uh, squadron in 2010. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Canberra for 18 months with Duntroon. Yeah, that's Yeah, right. so we were there. We were in Canberra for a That's bit. right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, in fact, talk to us about that because that's a pretty important job. You were mm. you were instructing at RMC, so yeah. having killed half your platoon yeah. there as a student. <laughs> now, you were back. Now you were <laughs> teaching tactics. <laughs> All sorts of messed up battles overseas. I'm back to train the, train the cadets. But yeah. Um, that was really good because I kind of took it going, oh, God, this is in a, you know, it's not a special forces posting as such. Um, but I went back there and to actually get involved in training uh, young people who are really motivated to do something is, was super rewarding. Yeah. Um, so for 18 months, I was the lead instructor in first class and we, we just did a ton of great training exercise. And you actually have some knowledge behind what can go right and what can go wrong. And also even the stuff around that, I'm like, stuff can happen people can die this is this was my insight from it yeah Yeah, and the reality was that a lot of those junior officers on graduation were going out to units that were going to places like afghanistan yeah so it was far more pointed and real yeah absolutely and the also the reality of it is that people like yourself serve as such role models i mean we'd see Mm. the kind of generations of officers on selection who say I had Mark Wales at RMC yeah, gotcha. and, and yeah. wanted to be like him and that's why I'm here, the, yeah. that sort of thing, which is really important for the unit. Yeah, it's smart. The, whoever the SOCOM guys were that actually started putting our guys in the slots at, at RMC were smart because it had been when I was there. He was my adge mm. and he went on to be a squadron commander in, um, I think, one squadron. But he, I watched him and I was like, holy shit, I want to do that. Mm. And I think the same happened because he did it before me. Then I did it, so it... it yeah. Recruited in the end a few guys. So. Mm. That's clever. Rick Rick Burr was um, one of my instructors right. at Royal Military College, oh, awesome. the current chief of army. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah. a boss. Yeah. Um, before we leave RMC, talk to us or tell us in detail what is now a very infamous story of um, the the Shaggy Ridge phase <laughs> two. <laughs> Shaggy Ridge. So we had um, we were running the kind of sleep deprivation and uh, you know starvation exercise, which is the last hurdle for any RMC cadet. Oh, it's a pretty important exercise, right? Everyone remembers it. It's it's pretty hard. And we were running our one, and we it's normally like a five- or six-day exercise. And um, this time, someone had found uh, an admin instruction off a printer somewhere in, somewhere in the base, right? They'd found it. They, they had the finished dates. They had everything in it. Because they're not supposed to know when it ends. No, That's part of it, isn't no, it? No, yep. part of the you know, psychology. You kind of know where it roughly might end, but you don't know exactly. Um, and we found this out. We're like, we knew they were just biding their time to the end of the X. So I told the CEO, and he's like, oh, I said, we've got a few options. We can stick with the end date or we can extend this sucker and, and see what they've got. And he's like, oh, no, let's extend it. To his credit, like he <laughs> yeah. just, to his credit, he was happy to let me run with it. So 
we came up with a plan. We brought them all in at the end of the X and said, you know, that's that's the end of. Um, well, actually, we didn't even say that. We we're like, come in, hand back your radios and rations. We put them on buses, and they were all high fiving and getting selfies. And um, they thought that was that. And then we we took them back to Duntroom, which was half an hour away. And um, I just walked out and said, all right, that's the end of the first phase. And uh, now we're starting the second phase, so get back on the bus. And um, oh, I felt pretty bad. I was like, oh. It was like, I felt like I was beating up puppies, basically, because they were all pretty tired. And then we sent them back out for 24 more hours. And it completely changed the dynamic of their teams because there were some people that were kind of just hanging on and the facade was still up. And then after that, there was some some dropped facades. So. A few tears, <laughs> a few wobbly tears. bottom lips. <laughs> Cheating is clever. But, uh, I can't blame a cadet that no, sees I an can't. admin instruction on no. a yeah, printer. But, the errant oh, yeah. admin instruction. That's I, fine, but you know, get your hopes up for that that end date. You know, pin your. It's like the climax anticlimax thing we spoke about with Mon. That yeah, you, I said you that. Think that's it. I said if it's a black op, it's got to be it's got to be tight. And you guys, you guys, let yourselves down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Okay, so finished up at RMC, yeah. and then what on earth does, uh, sort of drove you to decide for a, an MBA, and, and in particular one in the States? Yeah, I, I remember chatting to you about it earlier. On my last tour overseas, I was kind of looking at, I'd always want to go back to the US because I'd spent some time in New York, and I uh, thought it'd be great to go back and study there. And after doing one of those tours, I thought, oh, if I'm going to jump, it'd be a great time to do it now. Mm. But to get into a US MBA, you've got to sit at GMAT, which is for anyone who hasn't done one, it's a standardized test, goes about four hours, and they basically use it to, to rank students. And it's got algebra and geometry and all that stuff that I'm pretty bad at. And you add for academic yeah. results don't count, so you don't get a yeah. free ride off the, yeah. it. It is the selection course of, <laughs> of the academic <laughs> minds. Yeah. Yeah. Having done one myself, I, I think that was more painful than, than as a selection. That's yeah. a hard, hard and, test. And my background in uh, the history of rock and roll <laughs> and, for, and naval history really held me in good stead for that for that test. So I think I sat it four times before I got the test I needed, uh, the score I needed to get Wharton, and then uh, kind of pulled the application together. Um, got accepted, went and visited, and thought, "All right, I think I'll jump." But it was a big decision because you've yeah. thrown away a whole a whole career. Really, it's it's not a easy thing to do. So, and talk to us about Wharton, the campus, the MBA, yeah, yeah, the, the cohorts, the yeah, the uh, facilitators, yeah, lecturers. So when I got, I knew it was a special place because when I visited, there was a guy there that had been Australian Army, and he knew I was coming, and he, he wanted me to join the class. And he goes, meet me at this pub at this time in, in Philly. And I walked out expecting, you know, he'd be there with a beer or something. But he'd recruited about 20 other veterans from the school that were there to meet me because well, I'd come in from Australia. And all these guys that were, they were either Navy SEALs or pilots or, you know, Korean intelligence. They were all nationalities and all people were there yeah. waiting to shake my hand and welcome me to the school. And I was like, holy shit, I've never seen that in Australia or no one's ever done that. And I thought I was really moved by it. And um, I thought, this is a good community. It's a really good group of people that are excited about school. And um, it's a completely new field as well because you go to the bottom of the stack, you're SAS, you're kind of revered in that field and everyone thinks you're awesome. And then you go to business school and you're at the bottom of the stack again. (laughs) Actually, we're the only ones (laughs) who used to think we're awesome. (laughs) I convinced myself of that. And then when I went to business school, I was like, I actually don't know anything about this. Mm. And, um, but it was, it was a great institution. And I think 
leaving the military, having two years of another institution where I was separated from the military was actually a good thing for just yeah. general recovery. It was good. And let's talk through the workload of an MBA at Wharton. Yep. What's it look um, like? So the first six months is like the core curriculum, and that's the actual the tough bit. So all the main subjects you got to get finance, your accounting, yeah, all that account. stuff. And I went through all that. I was just so excited to be there. I was out partying most nights and not doing anywhere near <laughs> as much work as I should have. And um, my grades were terrible. I was getting eaten alive because these guys are so competitive and so good at their job. Um, you know, they've been in industry for five to ten years. And I was just the bottom of the class in a lot of different classes. And, and they've come from, you know, from oh, big banks, finance, yeah, yeah. Uh, consulting, McKinsey, Bain, yeah. BCG. Um, yeah. I remember the average score in the final exam, my accounting uh, class was 93%. The average score, and I think I was like 65 I was going to say, that's, that's factoring in. <laughs> you bringing it down. <laughs> so it was probably really 99%. Yeah, yeah normalised. <laughs> There's some good mathematical work you can do over oh, a bar. I mean, you yeah. those receipts and yeah. doing your calculation. You had foreign exchange to consider. Yeah, exactly. It was... It was um, Oh, it was a mess. And I remember the the <laughs> woman that had recruited me in at the start who kind of put a bet on me and goes, no, this guy will be able to do it. Um, I was on academic probation six months in and she just goes, pull your head in or you're out. She you wasn't nice about it. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, oh, God. And where, was, where were your 20 veteran buddies at that stage? Yeah. <laughs> just crickets. So I'm like, hey, help me. <laughs> <laughs> they were at the bar having a good old time. So was that a point and, of calibration? Oh, yeah, that was a learning moment. And... Um, and then I, I just I stopped drinking for about three months, which in an MBA is is no mean feat. And then and also suicidal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you need, yeah. You need something to get oh, you through God. the finance and accounting mm-hmm. subjects. But once I got through that kind of first six months to one year, it was it was great because then you can pick all these electives that you're interested in, like I do entrepreneurship and marketing and all that. And it was it was just unreal. That's when it got really fun. That's very cool. Yeah. And Plus, any travel in the states at that time? Oh yeah, so we do. We did a school trip to um, one of the ski fields. We hired out a whole resort at Breckenridge. Yeah, right. whole school just went through there like a dose of salt. Um, did a rugby trip to South Africa. Um, uh, rugby tournaments down in Virginia. It was cool. It was. It was so much to do. So you you're playing school rugby. Yes, yeah, yeah, school rugby. Because I wanted to play like gridiron, but then this, you have to know a lot of technical stuff. So like how to play gridiron. You're like how to play gridiron, <laughs> just little things, <laughs> small, <laughs> small obstacles. I'd watch Jared Hayne just make a meal of it overseas, and um, yeah, so we played. The rugby team was a big, you know, big mafia group at school, and uh, oh, it was unreal fun. Really good crew. That's very cool. Yeah. And so on graduation, you'd you'd had that interest in entrepreneurship. Yeah. How how did Kill Capture come about? Yeah, so I was. I had put in. I had this idea about it when I was going over, and I was trying to get a good jacket for school because I wanted a cool leather jacket. So I put aside some money to get one. And when I looked around at all the shops that had jackets, I was like, these aren't actually that good. Mm. Um, so I kind of came up with a few design ideas, but I didn't know how to execute it because it was still in the early stages of school. And I put the idea in a business school contest, and the judges just eviscerated me like this. <laughs> the name of this is offensive. Like <laughs> this idea is terrible. And um, it kind of shelved it for probably about six months. And then towards the end of school, I'm like, actually, I might do it. And I managed to get a prototype built in New York and then took it out of the school So nothing had show. changed. Nothing had got better. <laughs> no. It was no. just a, no. it was distant from the... <laughs> what had got better is time. <laughs> time I kind of sat on it and reflected and uh, I was like, oh, no, I think we can do it. And then just built one. But the early versions I made, I think I, 
I made them for $1,500 and I sold them to my friends for 1000 and I was sitting there going, is that's that, not a business model. Did you learn that at the NBA? Yeah. <laughs> is that what they teach you at Water? Two years to learn how to sell something for less than you paid for it. <laughs> yeah, Let's talk so, about the name Kill Capture, Capture yeah. with a K. Yeah, What's so the I, origin of the name? I was sitting there, I was thinking of a bunch of names and I wanted something really, really strongly military, something distinctive and also something I could buy the domain for. And I thought of Kill Capture because it's got hard Ks in it, like Calvin Klein. Oh, yeah. Um, Michael Kors, they're kind of well known as as strong brand names because of the hard K. And um, and then I thought of Kill Capture and the domain was available and I kind of went with it because it is a bit distinctive, but I get a lot of I get a lot of shit for the name because it's it is really out there. But you carve a really line in the sand of a bunch of people that won't like it ever, and then mm. a bunch of people that love it because it's just a bit hard hitting and there's no. And precedent for it. Of course, as background, that was the, the mission verb for a lot yeah. of the activities we were doing in Afghanistan, yep. kill capture a, a high-value target. Yeah, and, and you can argue about the effectiveness of it as a mission profile, but, oh, yeah. but as a... As, as a, a fashion as a name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the hard Ks, you've got Kiki K, the female <laughs> fashion yeah. brand. It's two hard Ks. Good, yeah. No, that is true. It's stationary. I don't think so, is it? Yeah, it is. Will we, will we ever know? <laughs> it's stationary fashion? It's actually quite a... We'll sideline Tim for the fashion discussion. But, mate, talk to us about Tough Luxury because that's the underpinning sort of concept or philosophy of your brand. Yeah, so, and I thought, oh, we'll have these values of mission teams, special ops values of of being mission-focused and uh, looking after a team rather than just, you know, status and individualism that most brands kind of are, which I find really irritating after a while. Um, And when I first started building, I go into these... Uh, contracted areas in in New York in the garment district, and people would be like, "What the fuck is this guy doing?" Like, <laughs> like we're used to the scrawny, like uh, you know, interns coming up here and who actually know what they're doing. They're at Parsons yeah. Fashion School, but I had mates that were from Parsons that kind of talked me through the process, and was just able to get a guy that did a build who was really good at it, and I had to pay top dollar, but his mm. quality is really strong, and um, just he kept selling. He designed or you designed? I designed with a mate who was an actual fashion designer. She did all the proper design for it. And then with a tech pack, we built some prototypes and then just modified those we went. And one of the things you've never compromised on is the quality of your, I was going to say ingredients, your components. Yeah. But but talk us through what a, a Kill Capture Pathfinder jacket's made out of. Yeah, so I get this really high-grade kangaroo leather. So it's... it's um, much tougher than any other leather. We have footy boots and footies because it's just so strong. And the kangaroo is such a lean animal that it's a really high-grade leather. So <clears throat> started with that. There's some fur that lines it as well and also some decent lining. And, and all the zips and hardware are all really high-grade. The idea being that it's just going to last. Like, you don't want something that's going to fall and, apart. Am I right in saying it was, it was originally or maybe still titanium zips, Kevlar, buddy... Thread. No, we didn't. We were going to put that in. But we have that was the prototype. <laughs> that it? was the yeah. prototype, but we haven't <laughs> got, got the, the bill. <laughs> <laughs> then we got the bill. Next step is graphene for fireproofing or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been fun building though. Mm. Yeah. And what are the other features of the jacket? Because they're quite unique, and in many ways, they're they've stolen or borrowed some ideas from military. Yeah. Uniforms. So the cry we had cry precision uniforms, pretty advanced kind of American made. Uniforms that had all these different features on them, so I kind of copied some of that, like high collar and a 
I'll reinforce the right shoulder a bit. Um, there's also that mounting pocket on your yep. shoulder. So yep. generally, if you're carrying body armor, you can't use pockets on your front too much, so you get them on your sleeve. So that was one thing. Um, and just taking that kind of streamlined, minimalist design, I really like that. So we copied copied that as much as we could. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. And so that was, that was the sort of uh, kickstart out of uh, Wharton, but yeah. also McKinsey. Yeah. I, I thought the old... Uh, Selling it a thousand bucks wasn't going to pay the bills. It was costing me fifteen hundred, so I thought I'd better get a real job. Yeah, and um, yeah, recruited for McKinsey, which they go to Wharton quite a bit um, to recruit, and that was a pretty hard interview process too. It was like a you know the go through all the case studies. Case studies. Yeah, so that was a little bit hectic, but um, I had some good coaches for that. Got got the job with them, and then was in McKinsey Australia and then New York at the end of my career. So. That was good. Mm. Pretty brutal hours, but the learning was really good mm. because you're just really thrown the deep end with no no understanding of how to do the day-to-day things, but you're expected to figure it out quickly because it's such a big back end at McKinsey. They've got all these analytics experts and all this other horsepower, so you can kind of leverage that and figure out the answers you need. Mm. It was good. But any interesting assignments without mentioning clients? Uh, yeah, what was the best one I did? A lot of mining, a lot of mining. So I was up in the some of the Australian outback, some of the coal mines up there, optimizing operations. That was that was pretty cool actually, and then a couple of good retail ones in Sydney. Um, yeah, figured out how to optimize a cheese packet at one point. That was pretty mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> nothing, nothing for Kiki K though. Nothing for Kiki K. I heard there was a Victoria's Secret um, study mm-hmm. going out at one point, so that was a pretty popular uh, one that people were onto. You didn't didn't get. I did not get that. No, no, did not. And it was about that time that I mean, were you still in McKinsey when you were looking at Survivor? Yeah, I I was in New York by then, Mm -hmm. and I it was the middle of winter in New York, and I was like, oh god, this is a bit rough, and I saw. Um, the ad for Australian Survivor back home, and I was like, that looks like fun. I'll sign up for that. Obviously, probably won't get it because so many people apply every year and there's fans and all that that, that do it. But um, started getting through a couple of gates, and then I was like, oh, shit, I might actually, <laughs> might actually be doing this. And then I had to explain to my boss at one point when the um, exec producer rings and goes, hey, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, of course I do. And I had to explain it to my boss without telling him I was going on the show. I'm like, i to go back to Australia for a month and... Um, and then did the went home, took the flight, met a chaperone in Sydney, this dude that basically ushered me around the airport and told me not to talk to anyone. And they flew us into Samoa and we were in a quarantine for like five days in a hotel room. And then they just pack us up, put us on a boat and we start. So you've pretty much lived a career of operational security. <laughs> exactly. You know, you've, you've been sworn to secrecy with some of the nation's top secrets. You, you blew it at RMC, clearly, because the cadets found out your admin instructions. Exactly. But, I mean, what, what level of OPSEC were, were they running on this reality show? Oh, they, they were running selection style, like, uh, you know, blindfold yourself between production runs in right. the vans, don't talk to anyone, like full silence. Mm. Um, because they want to capture everything on TV, so... They want you talking to each other when there's no cameras around. Yeah, meet for the first time. Honestly. Yeah. So there's no little icebreaker. You were you no were secret isolated. handshakes. You're all isolated. Okay. And then the first time you meet, you're actually all on the beach together, and they capture it. Mm. Okay. So on a scale of one to ten on the opsec side, how do they feel? Oh, they get probably a good eight. Mm. Probably mm. good eight. They're mm. pretty pretty good at it. Yeah. Very good. Now, 
we killed you off in the zombie apocalypse yeah. because of your choice of a tie. <laughs> Most of this was coming from that first scene when you're, you're on a barge in torrential rain, everyone's wearing sort of appropriate attire <laughs> and, and you're running the Pathfinder leather jacket, mate. Talk, yep. talk us through its, its suitability as a tropical yeah. uh, piece of clothing. I walked out. On uh, onto this boat in my <laughs> cowboy boots, which weren't practical to walk in at any point ever, and a leather jacket, and I was just thinking that I've bitten off more than I can chew. I mean, if only you'd served in the SAS or something, and you know you had some it's skills, you knew what it was transferable. Like to, to yeah, um, and you did look cool. And I'm like, I'll be. Oh, this will be great. And so we started, and the first thing. John LaPaglia says when he's talking to the group, he's hey, you, you know you're in the tropics, you with the leather jacket, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's cold at night and second skin. And it ended up being bloody handy because it was like cyclone conditions at night and freezing. So, yeah. Who's laughing now, John? Yeah, who's laughing now? Yeah. And, he's a uh, medical doctor. Is he? Yeah. No way. Yeah. I didn't know that. Pretty like, sure. Like Kiki K's a clothing company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as I've said before, <laughs> do not fact check that. Tim's facts may not be true. Um, okay, so you're looking good. You're looking good. Feeling, On the bar. Feeling hot. Feeling hot. <laughs> feeling pretty warm. Feeling, feeling a little <laughs> steamy. Uncomfortably <laughs> heat. <laughs> Actually, before we leave the leather jacket, because I do love my Pathfinder jacket. I, I think I said in that previous episode, I feel very tough wearing it. It's a great, yeah, yeah. great thing. Good little number. But... Um, it's, <laughs> I've told you about, I've, I went to the Army-Navy game in, in Baltimore. and um, Near-death experience. Near-death experience. It is, <laughs> it is not super warm. But um, it stood up all right. Yeah. You've still got the jacket you wore on that show. I've still got, I've still got the one I wore on the island. I just got it yeah. like, cleaned up when I came home. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, went through all the salt water. and the, Yeah, went through it all. Swam it okay. out and it got hammered, but it's, it's still pretty good. Still, it's, it's a great auction item. It's still going. Yeah, it's still what, alive. What would it fetch under auction, do you think? Oh, a good... 500 pesos, <laughs> <laughs> non-Australian non currency. But you don't still have Jacket 001, do you? Was that no, the that, one? that is the original, the one I was wore on the island, but then I lost my second one ah, right. on an aircraft. And that's why I put the beacon now on the jacket. So when I lost it, I was like, holy shit, that cost me you know, whatever it cost. <laughs> and um, I thought, oh, I'll put these tile beacons in there because at least the jacket, because it's expensive, you can track your phone, but... People make these expensive jackets and you can't mm. find the bloody thing mm. if you're leaving the nightclub. So now I had the beacon in there and not many other fashion brands are doing it because it's uneconomical. And you've got some <laughs> you've got some uh, celebs that are wearing the jacket. You've got General Mattis. Yeah. He's wearing a jacket. Yeah, General Mattis got one. And I, I packaged one up when he retired and sent it to him through a mad little informant network in yeah. the US. I don't think it's gotten to him yet. It's been in the pipeline for about a year and a half, but... Eventually, he'll get his jacket. I thought but I'd you, seen a picture no, of him wearing You did it. do a photo shoot with him. Yeah. He yeah. came out and we threw one on him, but it wasn't actually his. So, um, But that was a coup. He was he was, he was bef between jobs. So he left CENTCOM and was going to SecDef in, in a year or two's time, but mm. we didn't know that then. So, mm. Mm. Okay. So jackets aside, you're on the island. What, what Tinier was it from like? your boots. Yeah, tinier from your <laughs> boots. Prickly heat from the jacket. Blisters. <laughs> Feeling yeah. good. Obviously looking good. Felt very felt sharp. good. Yeah. What what was it like? So the the barge was kind of the first time you'd seen your teammates. Yeah. It was cool because we got they they shipped us out. And they don't tell you what you're doing, but we got on, the, on a little boat and we went out to a big boat. And when we climbed up the side of this big kind of barge boat, that was the set. It was all the caned and the logs and the coconuts was all there. And I was like, oh shit, this is it. And there was all there was twenty three other contestants kind of sitting around in the rain. 
on the boat and I was like this is going to be everyone from the crew and there were people like production crew run around with cameras and they run up and film your face and I was like well I don't know what to do with it you know look off in the distance <laughs> or do you want me to say something or um, and they filmed us and then the next day in the morning the show started and they off we went mm-hmm. but they don't produce it like they don't talk to you they don't stop you. They don't mm. make you say it again. It's all just, They're just collecting. Just silent running. Collecting yeah, like, vision. Yeah. Is, is the, I mean, you've obviously, in fact, I remember watching the first episode when it screened live to air. So you've seen it. Yeah. Is it a different portrayal to how you remember the events unfolding? What, uh, what hits the screen? Yeah, but they pick, it is kind of different, but they pick certain storylines out because each episode's about three days of filming. Mm-hmm. So they'll just pluck out the storyline they like and then they'll kind of elaborate on that and they'll change it with some weird music and some yeah. scenes of, you know, you looking at someone funny that from five days earlier and just they'll make a whole story out of that. And So, yeah, so they do massage it a bit, but it's, it's but pretty that's funny. It's yeah. entertainment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so clearly binding you by non-disclosure agreements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, what what has now become history, you you met Sam there. When, when was the first time you, you sort of remember sort of laying eyes on, it, on Samantha. So I got onto the boat and she was standing near me. She was sitting on a big tray of zucchinis and she was, she was short, you know, she's four foot 11. And I was like, I looked at her and go, you're going to get eaten alive out of here. You know, <laughs> leave this to us, uh, you know, professionals in the, in the leather jackets. <laughs> but I was looking at her I'm like, she's a good looking, uh, good looking lady. And then she was kind of talking to herself as we sat there. I, I knew she was a bit kooky. And then when we hit the beach, in our teams, I was chatting to her and found out she was um, about my age, corporate lawyer, and and I trusted her as well. You couldn't trust anyone in your team because they were just a bit shady. But she was she was trustworthy, and we stuck together in, in the whole show and were thick as thieves. And then got to, off and, and to your detriment, to, <laughs> to to my detriment. She got voted off, and then I went after the uh, the perpetrators of that, and then they picked me off. So I had to pack the jacket up and get out of there. <laughs> Yeah, famously the same episode as Luke Toki. Yeah, Luke. He he's it's funny. He's exactly as he looks on TV. He's not. He's a total rat bag. A really funny <laughs> guy. Yeah, lives in Baldivis. Yeah, you know, works in the mines, and uh, he's a top bloke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, funny guy. And didn't win, but took away over half a million dollars. Oh, and the second one, he did too. Mm. And mm. and now, so he did that, and now he's running a TV show with Channel Ten, which is live stream commentary on on Survivor. So. And he's on TV. Yeah, he's done really well. Over it. He's done really well. Seems very genuine. Yeah, he's he's awesome. Mm. Funny guy. And forming friendships through people that I mean, you're competing in many ways. Yeah. But you do form friendships. Yeah. Through those alliances, but even the fracture lines, Mark. Yeah. So on our after I got off, I met a bunch more of them. And AK was one. He was kind of a villain from our season, but he's a really lovely guy. And then. Amy, she was a female tradie, like she's a, sold herself as a plumber on the show. She lives right near us, so we're all we're all pretty pretty good mates, really. Um, and of course, cool. Jackie, we were just watching the scene of you getting voted off the island. <laughs> a lot of friction with we watched it eight times. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where you you call her out, and, oh, yeah. and then she ends up playing a, a pretty special part in your your wedding. Yeah, yeah Jackie voted me out, and then we uh, made amends and, and did the old. Uh, what's the name? The MC. MC. Yeah. MC. The uh, celebrant. Celebrant. The wedding. Yeah. Um, and yeah, did a great job. That's her career. Champagne celebrant. Yeah. Very cool. Um, was it sort of anticlimactic coming off the island? Uh, it was a bit. It was a bit weird because you come off and you have one or two days in a hotel and then you shipped home. You don't really have a debrief with everyone on the island. Mm. 
Um, so that was kind of weird. But Sam Sam had just come off too, so I caught her up, and I was like, "Get over to Perth, we'll catch up." Yeah, and um, yeah, that was it. Was there romance before you were voted off? Oh, we we knew we liked each other on the show, but you couldn't get it, get away with much because you're all it's all tight quarters, and you can't, you know, you really can't. It's just not the conditions for it, so. Wasn't a lot of romance. You mean sanitary there. conditions? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My leather jacket was a bit dirty by then. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And so what now? Uh, so, so Sam actually got me into corporate speaking. She was she'd been doing it for years. Yeah. And I had kind of wanted to do it because I'd done a bit of speaking at McKinsey, and then and I got a one or two clients. She got introduced me to a couple of banks. And I did a few talks there, and they kind of centered around stuff I learned at McKinsey and stuff that we learn in, in SAS around resilience. And then I started doing that and then I got a few more jobs and I've just kept building on it for the last two years. So that and Kill Capture. So they're the mm. only two. Good good counterbalance. Oh, it's good fashion fun. Fashion and speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah speaking of which, we the Kill Capture social media machine's been in overdrive lately. We, mm, we've got yeah. T minus 10. Uh, I think we're going to do about 18 days. We've got to get the... Right. Get all the website readjusted. You're, you're for pushing a, HR. <laughs> pushing <laughs> Classic. We're not ready. We're not ready to cross the line of departure. <laughs> I'm almost certain I saw a, a, a post with a B1 bomber saying T minus 10 last yeah. night. <laughs> okay. That sounds like life in our office, actually. Yeah, that's, yeah rolling HRs. De- deadlines just keep pushing. Yeah, yeah. Napoleon asked me for anything but time. T minus 18. Yeah. yeah what, so. what, what are you going to drop on us? Is this a, a scoop? Is this a scoop? This could be this is scoop. So we've got a little collaboration with a race car driver who's partnered with a major French watch, like luxury watchmaker. And we just had the chance. These watchmakers like, yeah, we'll do a kill capture watch. Um, and we did a few designs and we've got three prototypes made and we're going to open it up for pre-orders um, in a couple of weeks. So That's awesome. That's it. Mm. Yeah, it'll be and good. A it'll tough luxury watch. Tough luxury watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, we just messed around with it. It's all black and silver, and we got some imagery of it, so we'll, we'll drop that. If it was a yeah. fob watch, you could wear it in oh, the jacket. Fob watch, little. <laughs> ye ye old, ye tough luxury. <laughs> tough luxury. Well, ye old is ye tough. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say, you're not going to be consulting <laughs> to kill capture. Uh, my, my, my luxury is certainly Here's not tough card. and certainly not luxury. <laughs> Kiki K might be interested in your ideas, too. <laughs> Well, that, that actually just reminds me of our short-lived um, ambassadorial gig watchmaker. <laughs> we um, we were brand ambassadors for a brand I can't remember. <laughs> no, well, it's not worth remembering, really. Yeah, they yeah. cut you away after a while. Or what no, happened? We, no, we we <laughs> we they we sent in the pitch and said, you know, unforgiving sixty, living life life less ordinary, and um, they and sent us a bunch of watches, need which, a watch. which were more or they were pretty ordinary, <laughs> they were very ordinary. <laughs> they were living lives very ordinary. <laughs> I think they went to went to the kids, and they're probably now in the bin. Yeah, no, hands <laughs> fell, fell off, and that's, you know, it was not tough. <laughs> Made in yeah. Taiwan, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, what else would be in the pipeline? I mean, you know what. What fits in that tough luxury? What, in terms of your dream, your your vision for the company? What other sort of products are you thinking? So I had I've been sitting on that jacket for about four years, just doing iterations mm. on it. I'm like, I, didn't, I don't want to branch out too much. And then there's a guy in the US helping me now, who used to be Aussie Army, and he just goes, look, let's let's iterate a few prototypes of other things that are kind of tough luxury, and we'll just see if they stick. Mm. So single handedly, he like raised a, a rum label, a bloody perfume bottle, a axe. And a few other like gifting type things, 
So, <laughs> an axe throwing axe and other gifts. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> other gifts for the kids. Um, <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so we've got all the gifting stuff, and mm. we'll, we'll just we'll do another pre order cereal because then you know what is actually going to stick and who's going to pay for yep. a particular item, and that's the best gauge of what to make. So, yep. if people don't want them, we won't make them, but if you do get pre orders, then you off you go, you can get a batch and, and keep selling. So, what's the dream? I mean, if you were to look sort of scan the market yeah where would you like to be oh, i think i think it's the sort of thing that you could grow to a, a t, you know one or five or ten thousand followers it would just get anything you release because it's high quality and i know it's going to be good and that way you can just keep you can secure a segment of the market that no one else really markets to because mm. um all the fashion brands don't really target guys like you or me or have a background in military staff or first responders they're kind of ignored by high fashion and and that's an opportunity kind I've, of for I've us. I've often felt ignored yeah. by high <laughs> And we, we do not deserve to be ignored <laughs> by high fashion. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um, I tell you what I can't get is a pair of pants that fit. You know, like the skinny jeans yes. fad makes it really difficult yep. to, you know, if you've done one squat in your life, then you're not fitting in those, yeah. those jeans. And, uh, yeah, I get the older, a little bit of thigh rubbing and they break in you know six months time that's which is thing. Thing. I mean, a, a, a quality leather pant would go with a leather jacket quality chap or something like that. do you reckon you could bring back the leather pant whatever happened to that it's funny because yeah. when i was up in the factory in new york they yeah. had this leather set of pants and i was like oh, i actually look pretty bloody They're good coming back mm. but um you know pretty strong statement to be wearing leather pants but you know it's bold it's very bold in the year um, 2000 they were they were in they and were, around they were in yeah. Yeah. well I grew up I mean Guns and Roses wore nothing but yeah. they were my, my style icons yeah. still are mm. yeah, wear them on uh, Survivor next time <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that'd be interesting yeah, all sorts some, of that's uh, some nasty jungle issues nasty. You'd, you'd need Fungal. some aeration yeah, yeah. take the knife to them a little bit yeah you're giving leadership keynotes, uh, leadership and resilience. Yeah. Some general themes and observations on leadership, resilience done well or not done so well. What, what's your advice for corporates? Yeah. Well, I talk, when I started doing it, I kind of just touched on when I returned from Afghan, I had um, you know, suffering trauma. I found it, some weird behaviours I had I didn't understand. When spoke to a neuroscientist, like, yeah, it's classic PTSD and, and depression. Um and then he kind of showed me some steps to try and improve it. I had never really talked about that that much in these corporate presentations, but as I touched on it, more companies would ask for more of it or people would come up um, asking questions about it. So I started talking about it more and more and found there's a massive demand for it. And I never used to because I wasn't. it's not something you talk about or you're proud, you know, I was proud about. But um, the more I do it, the more I realise there's a huge need for it and it's actually having a really good impact. Like people are taking... The things I talk about, which as basic as, uh, you know, rest, it, good dieting, good exercise, like as simple as that, and they're implementing them, it's, it's helping other people. So yeah. that's one that's really been a surprise to me. I didn't think that would be a big thing. I thought it'd be leadership, and but it's not. It's, it's, it's that field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of your authentic self, you know, trauma, stress, anxiety, however you yeah. want to label you know, yeah. your past, yeah. that is part of your authenticity, which I think would be appealing to most. Yeah, people like, they, and when they hear it from a soldier, they're like, all right, if it's okay for a soldier to mention that or to tackle that, then it's okay for me to do the same thing. So It's funny, even with things like mindfulness and meditation and those kind of things that 
actually do get a bit of traction in in military units you know yeah. people are starting to to become aware of the power of these yeah. things it is funny the vector when it comes from a, a soldier saying that it, it yeah it's like oh these guys are supposed to be tough guys and yeah, it almost gives, like you say, gives permission yeah. for, that, for that to be acceptable. And it goes all the way back to, like when you're talking about selection, how the physical part is kind of, it's almost a by byline in the whole piece. You expect to have a threshold well, level. Yeah, it's an expectation. It's yeah. a baseline. It's, it's a, and people focus on it. It's kind of nothing, and the rest is really around your mindset and and how you you handle tough times, or you know, and that's such an important part of soldiering, and then life after soldiering. Mm. So, what about daily practices, Mark? What do you do? regularly yeah. if not every day that you think improves the quality of life outlook yeah. mental health physical health yeah the biggest things i mentioned were kind of bookending your day with some good routine so at the start I, I try and get exercise in you know three or four times a week um try and at night kind of off ramp the day so i have a 20 30 minute routine where i do a shower a bit of stretching might do a few breathing exercises read a book for half an hour uh, 20 minutes and then then all of a sudden you're kind of ramped down. You can sleep properly, and mm. you know, I think you get better quality sleep as well. Um, so that probably those two are the big ones, and then just making sure you're eating as well as you can. Um, that was that was another one. They're the main ones, and they're only the basics. They're really basic, but they're hard to do consistently. I found hard so. to do well. Yeah, yeah, and that's that virtuosity thing, isn't it? You know, it's it's nothing flashy. It's no. just doing the basics well. No, and that yeah. was a unit. It was just. They, they were soldiers, but they did the basics so well, yeah. like mm. the camouflage, all that stuff. Just it's hard to do it um, consistently. And yeah, we well. talk about that little things done well. I yeah. mean, that's the foundation of, mm. of the unit. Yeah. Okay, next topic. I suspect, I predict, is probably going to be the most important thing in your life, being a father. Oh, yeah. How's that changed things? Oh, it's been great. It's, um, I never knew what to expect. I'm 40, just turned 40, um, and we had Harry. He's two years old now. And you don't know what to expect. But then when you have a kid, you realize you're totally wired to, to take care of your offspring. It's not an issue. And you have nights where you don't sleep and all that, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's the most rewarding thing I've done, for sure. Um, mm. And you're doing it jointly. I've got Sam there, and, and we do it, yeah, all the time. Do you, do you have any idea what you're doing? <laughs> no. No, no, I still. <laughs> Sam goes away for a couple of days, and I'm, yeah, I'm, Feeding him, uh, you know, things she doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> things that are edible. Um, <laughs> keep them happy. But it's funny, isn't it? I, I reflect often that this is such an important thing. Our relationships with our spouses yeah. or yeah. significant others and our parenthood. Yeah. And yet you don't, there's no four-year degree course. No. There's no MBA no. in it. There's, you know, we dedicate all of this professional study to getting better at stuff that actually in the grand scheme probably matters less than yeah. the stuff we're just cuffing yeah it's funny we talked imposter syndrome with a client of ours and uh, she said that she felt most acutely an imposter when she carried her child home from the hospital for the first time oh yeah completely unqualified to be a yeah. mother in her and, and such a relatable universal absolutely yeah. yeah like you say you know you, you're hardwired to look after a kid but yeah. that doesn't mean you know what you're doing no yeah. um but it's it's just been a it's bloody rewarding because you watch them grow and there's so much you can put into it and I think in the West we've kind of gotten confused between the importance of individual achievement and looking after your family unit. There's always that constant conflict mm -hmm. and other cultures do it better than we do. I think it's important to remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it does. I mean, having been nomadic children, both Tim and I moving yeah. around as army brats, you know that takes a, a village. 
to raise an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> or two idiots. <laughs> two idiots. Takes a village to raise a child. I mean, now being settled and with my wife's extended Italian yeah. family and just the, the importance of those non-parental yep. role models who love the child. So, you know, it's, it's a great environment. Yeah. Yeah, so true. What qualities of yours do you hope Harry inherits? Oh, I hope... <laughs> Excellent uh, leather None jackets. Nunchuck skills. <laughs> Nunchuck skills. Both skills. <laughs> Computer hacking skills. Um, <laughs> Ability to remove something off the photocopier. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, hopefully he's just a, you know, hopefully he just goes and does what he wants to do and doesn't get pigeonhole himself into something that he thinks I want him to do or society wants. You, you, I think people know when they're doing something there. Um, doing for the wrong reasons. You just don't want him. I don't care if he's going to be the best waiter on earth or the best dancer or a bloody SAS soldier, as long as he's yeah. happy with what he's doing. Yeah. One, one of the things, and I've often used this phrase when talking about you behind your back, but <laughs> one of the things that's always impressed me about you is you've, you've always swung for the bleachers. You've never thought, oh, it'd be nice to do that, but it's not for me. You've always had a crack. And, you know, Wharton was a really good example, obviously, the SAS, Survivor, starting a company, McKinsey. I mean, You've always set your goals really high and, and just had a crack. And I reckon if you can pass that on to your kid, he'll be doing all yeah, right. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I, I, you definitely want him to – you don't want him sitting there on the balcony when they're 80 going, oh, I could have done yeah. X, Y, or Z. And could at least could if have you been tried, a contender. Yeah, because yeah. as if for every swing there's been something else. Like I wanted to be a drummer and that mm. kind of disappeared with my <laughs> drum kit to <laughs> the second-hand shop a while ago. You know? So you don't get it. You know, don't get them all, but it's good to, to try. Quick questions, quick answers. Yep. So we yeah. often wrap up our our um, interviews with this section. Mad quick minute. questions, quick answers. Neither generally come true, but we'll, <laughs> we'll try and keep them brief. First up, what's your coolest army moment? Oh, pro- probably standing on a balcony in Lebanon on uh, op ramp when we're doing evacuations, and I was totally on my own. And I had no weapons or anything. I was just there uh, helping do this evacuation, and um, it was and it was unafraid. great. Yeah, it was like it was great to be so far from home doing something exciting. But the city was like it felt like Paris with guns. It was just cool, mm. cool ha. city. Johnny Rambo, I work better alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said you train three to four times a week. Do you listen to anything? Um, yeah, I do. I've got a pretty good podcast list now. Just. Cut unforgiving sixty away. <laughs> <laughs> now I got Joe Rogan. Got uh, you guys. Got um, Tip Ferriss. So those, yeah. I always love getting into those podcasts from driving or, or training. Yeah. Following on from that, what's your what's your power song? What's your go to when oh, you need that inspiration? It's got to be it's got to be anything Rage Against the Machine. Brilliant. It's hard. To, yeah, they're touring in March in the US. Yeah, we, we used to listen to a fair bit of Rage in our CrossFit training days when we were at regionals Tim you probably would know I, I was actually hoping you'd say harder than you think public oh, enemy yeah, tune exactly. which was always a go to yeah, for us yeah a cracker here yeah. mm. a favourite fashion item what's the Ooh. in your cupboard what thing do you prize the most oh, thing I love the most have to be the cowboy boots just because they're not they're custom made you can't rebuild them so they're, they're cool but they, yeah, they get a bit painful if you're walking on bitumen or Samoan sand. <laughs> so if you're walking, if you're walking, if you're walking or if, if you're yeah. being carried, however, exactly. or just sitting, like at a bar, yeah, or on your Samoan throne. Um, yeah. 
not leaving the fashion uh, theme. Who's doing fashion well at the moment? Who, who's your oh. go-to label? Rag and Bone. It's hard to yeah. go away from Rag and Bone because they. These are two cats that went to New York, and I think two thousand seven didn't know fashion and just kind of chipped away at it. And um, they just make good quality stuff. And I've got a mate who's in a private equity firm that bought some of Rag and Bone, so he tells me all the behind-the-scenes stuff there. Probably just got him in trouble, but <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. Some threads there on opportunity and chance. Do you believe in luck? Um, yeah, there's luck, but um, again, so much of it is that daily improvements that then you get an opportunity and all of a sudden you're lucky because you put the work in. And yeah. Mm. The, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, used to quote that to me. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, back to songs. You've done a few boxing matches. Oh, yeah. What, what's your go-to boxing, boxing entry song? Oh, ACDC, Highway to Hell. <laughs> <laughs> Oldie bit of goodies. Straight out of Quinana, that one. <laughs> Five years ahead, where are you going to be? Uh, hopefully, I want to have a place in Fremantle. So I want to have a place in Melbourne and have a house in Fremantle and go between and do speaking and have enough time to have, you know stay with the family and have Kill Capture growing. That'd be that'd be awesome. I mean, yeah. If you had a decent MBA, you could come and work <laughs> <Exactly>. with us. <laughs> We're not hiring. <laughs> no, I'll probably be an intern with Kiki K. By <laughs> by the the other double K. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yeah. Shop front. Yeah. Um. I think I know this. Favourite author? Oh, uh, hard to go past Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. I kind of started with his his new stuff after reading The Road and I think No Country for Old Men. Then I just went back and read it all. And I think there's a before and after moment in life of reading Blood Meridian. Everyone's like, that's a, a pretty full-on book, but it's a great... Turns, yeah. Yeah, it's great. And in fact, we, we spoke about The Road in the Zombie Apocalypse episode, oh. but... Yeah, I I read the road. In fact, I was on parental leave after oh. just having my daughter, and you know, of course, it's it's that father child to yeah. sort of like, jeez, I couldn't yeah. imagine reading that now. No, I haven't I'm, I'm choking up just thinking oh, about it. Hard. Yeah. yeah, I can't watch the movie. I've never watched the movie. No. Yeah, he wrote it because he'd had a son. Yeah, he had, and he was quite old. He was like sixty five, seventy or something. Yeah. Had a son and. And it was about the questions his son asked. Yeah, anyway, give us some Cormac. I, I know you've got a quote oh, here. I had. There's probably the best one he wrote was about the um, antagonist from Blood Meridian, who's a judge and he's a ha- giant hairless man, super intelligent, um, and is depicted as a pedophile. Like really, he's a he's a bad egg, and he leads these mercenaries to salvation, but they kind of make a deal with the devil in doing so. But he basically makes he, I don't know the exact quote, but um, something lines of like. Uh, before man was here, war was waiting for him. And you're just like, oh, that's pretty full on. <laughs> but it's a yeah, cool quote. Now we know now we know why you were killed off in the start of the apocalypse. <laughs> exactly. um, all of the reasons in the episode. But can't what run. would you <laughs> can't, can't, run, can't run, can deadlift. <laughs> Doesn't help us in the zombie apocalypse, however. <laughs> what would you bring to the apocalypse? Mick Nevin question. Hmm. Oh uh, a value. So I was gonna say fighter uniforms would be High-end fighter uniforms, everyone would be... Could you, yeah. could you turn that Kill Cat Capture Pathfinder jacket into a bite suit? I don't oh, reckon yeah. you could bite through a Kill Capture jacket. No. Have you tried? You just go... <laughs> just, <laughs> a, few, God, a few people in New York tried it. You just get thicker leather. Because mine's like only half a mil thick. You just get two mil leather. Do you know, that could be the next... You know, you've got the reinforced shoulder for shooting. Zombie-proof. You could have a reinforced sleeve for... You fending, know, like the dog fighting suits. Yeah. Fending zombies. Um, what else? 
That's, that could be Uniforms enough. would be really important. Yeah, that's good. Uniforms, you, you yeah. And you feel tough in those jackets. You feel tough. You, yeah. yeah. You could even get like a vest going if you wanted to. Yeah. What else? I, and I make a bloody good white chocolate and raspberry muffin. So, <laughs> oh, that's mean. So a bit that's of morale. A bit of morale for the fighters. You had a good guacamole, as I remember. Good guacamole. Yeah, okay. So we um, need good cooks. You sure. could be back with Mick in the, the centre of <laughs> in the, the, rear. the Napoleonic Square, <laughs> cooking muffins. and Just sending and salsa forward with a <laughs> dash of lime and coriander. <laughs> Sounds like we've exhausted all options. There's a lot covered in the episode. Yeah. No, it's brilliant to catch up, Mark. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.